This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an Opportune podcast. Make sure that you're going to opportune.com for previous and upcoming episodes of the show and to find out more about the different sectors that we operate in and some of our insights and solutions. You can also find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just look up E2B, Energy to Business, and subscribe. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to today's topic. Very niche and very important. The initial news for today's topic shocked business professionals, investors and consumers. I'm sure you've seen, but oil prices dropped into the negatives during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're still trying to decipher the long-term effects of this slump, but to truly understand the current oil price war, we're going to need to look to the past and to the geopolitical forces creating the conflict. So on today's episode of the podcast, we're spending time getting a better idea of what is causing the current oil price war and what lies ahead for the industry as well. I'm joined on the line by Steve Hendrickson. He's president of Ralph E. Davis Associates, an affiliate of Opportune LLP. And Steve is an upstream energy executive with a broad range of experience in operations, engineering, M&A, and corporate management of oil and gas assets. Steve, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks. Have you been holding up during all this craziness? Well, it's been a challenge. Uh, new ways of doing business. Uh, I think we've been uh, doing as well as we can and uh, fighting through the, the new challenges that uh, working remotely has created. Yeah, absolutely. Well, your industry and, uh, you know, for all of us as consumers, you know, we've really immediately felt the impact of COVID-19 on oil and on the energy sector. So I'm looking forward to getting your, uh, you know, your professional and your career expertise on this podcast. So let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, For the conversation today, we're going to try to track some of the events that caused this price war uh, and then also some of the historical events events that we can learn from to inform our response as an industry. And once we do all that, we'll then turn our focus to the future to try to understand what is in store for oil and what is in store for the energy industry. Uh, So we're going to start by tracking the three main events that have shaken up the oil industry in recent memory. We've got some general priced softness in 2019. Uh, So just some general malaise around the industry that we're going to unpack. A Saudi Arabia versus Russia disagreement that led to a drop in oil prices. And then the big one, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's start with the industry slumping a little bit in 2019. What led to that general malaise for the industry and and just a a general uh, bearish attitude towards the market? Well, you know, oil and gas prices or oil prices in particular, they're pretty sensitive to the supply-demand balance. And over the last several years, uh, the domestic, the U.S. domestic supply has been increasing pretty dramatically due to the shale revolution. Uh, we had production in the United States, I guess, was maybe as low as 4 million barrels a day a decade ago or so. And now we're around 11 or 12 or maybe even higher on a daily basis. And so... There was a steady increase in uh, 
production that uh, really wasn't being matched by the increase in demand. Although demand w continues to inch its way up, you know, kind of the global economy had slowed a bit. And uh, so we found ourselves in kind of a soft market in 2019. Prices were, you know, had been back in the $60 to $80 range and then had inched their way down into the, call it $50 to $60 range. And that was really only being supported by production cuts that were happening, uh, you know, primarily in the OPEC or OPEC plus Russia. Is the industry uh, reacting at all to any broader conversations from governments or activists or even professionals within the industry that are advocating for major reductions to carbon emissions and just a, a large scale restructuring of the industry? And if so, did that impact outlook at all during the year? Any of those uh, broader conversations or is that not really affecting prices day to day for the market? Well, I'd say in terms of the oil market, I, I don't think that is having a dramatic effect. Uh, you know, most of the most of the petroleum is used in transportation fuels and those really don't have a, an easy way for uh, renewable energy sources to contribute to that energy mix, if you will. Cars and planes and ships, those run on fuel. Most of them don't run on electricity, which is where renewable energy contributes or where it shows up in the, in the power system. I do suspect you could argue that you know there, there have been some trends around the globe in some countries and in ours as well to increase, uh, say, fuel standards so that cars get better mileage and uh, reduce lower emissions and, and having better mileage is the primary way to do that. So I think that's been an ongoing thing, but I don't think it really shaped the problems we were faced with last year. It's almost uh, too much success, right? There was a uh, the shale revolution and the dramatic increase in hydrocarbons just resulted in more than the the, the globe could really use. And we had um, a situation where OPEC was willing for a period of time to reduce their market share uh, while we continued to grow ours. And I think we came into 2020 that, you know, one of the, I guess, really the second event that we were going to talk about, uh, we're already in a position of market softness in 2019. And then OPEC is faced with the need to tighten supply a little bit further in order to support prices where they were. And of course, while they're doing that, uh, the beneficiaries are our domestic industry that continues to develop uh, oil at, uh, at prices that are make good economic sense. I think that perhaps Russia in particular, but to get, you know, working together, they reached the conclusion they weren't going to continue to do that. And it was a relatively uh, modest amount of oil that they chose not to take off the market. We were probably oversupplied a million to a million and a half barrels a day out of a global supply of something like 100 million barrels a day. So not a whole lot, but I think they had reached uh, the end of their rope. They didn't see that it made sense to continue to give up market share to support our industry. You know, we've become the number two or number three producer of oil around the world. So we're in a different position than we were a decade ago where we could produce pretty much anything we wanted and not have a dramatic influence on the global supply-demand picture. Uh, the world has changed. We've grown into a much more significant force. And so um, I think they had decided that, well, we're, we're just not going to continue to give up market share in order for uh, the American industry to 
to just keep on growing. Mm. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you're bringing up the the geopolitical influences on the market there. That was my next main point. So, I mean, obviously you're the expert. As I was prepping for this, though, I think uh, the statistics that I saw put the United States actually at number one for uh, producing oil around the globe. Maybe that was an outdated stat that I saw, but... Probably not. I'm probably just a little bit behind. You know, the, the growth rate has been so dramatic. Uh, yeah. And uh, Saudi Arabia in particular, you know, they, they have the ability to... They say, they claim they have the ability to produce 15 million barrels a day. They certainly can produce 12 and, and probably slightly higher and maybe even as high as 15. And, and of course, they swing a bit. So they could probably push themselves into the number one spot if they do. That would just worsen the uh, supply overhang, though. Right. I think it's interesting that we worked very hard as an industry for a long time to get in ourselves in this position where we would be able to supply much, if not well, we're not supplying all of our needs, but a very large portion of it. We're actually exporting oil for the first time in decades. And I don't know how many of us it really dawned on that as we grew into that position that we were going to be in a different role and that we were not going to that we were going to not just be able to produce whatever we wanted to produce as long as we wanted to produce it. Uh, if you look back at the history of the oil and gas business going back to the early days in the 30s and the 40s, where the, the U.S. really was the predominant producer, we had mechanisms in place to try to control production in a way that would prevent some of these really crazy price swings. Uh, eventually, other countries began to dominate the global scene. Uh, our production declined, and we didn't have that position any longer. Now we're back in a state where we're, we're kind of playing that role in the market, but we really don't have the political or industry mechanisms to throttle our production like the OPEC countries do or like Russia does, where they exert a lot of state control. You've briefly mentioned uh, some of the dynamics already, but I want to dig in a little deeper. Saudi Arabia and Russia are two of the other biggest players in oil production, like you said, producing tens of millions of barrels a day behind a top producer, at least from you know what I've seen, us, the United States. Could you break down what the general relationship is like between the second and third place spots, which are Saudi Arabia and Russia? Uh, you know, How do their oil markets often interact? And uh, where are some of the, uh, you know, I guess, exciting parts of their relationship and some of the uh, potentially fluctuating or volatile parts of their market relationship? So Saudi Arabia and Russia, they have a lot of overlapping interests, but they don't have exactly the same position in the market, even though they're both both very large. And, and what I mean by that is, at least the way I perceive it, Russia is a, a more diverse economy. Oil and gas, while important, is not as important to their revenues and budgets as it is um, to Saudi Arabia. I think that gave Russia a little stronger hand in this last round because it sounded like back in January the that the Saudis were willing to make cuts. They were bringing the rest of the OPEC 
players to the table and were willing to do their part. And it was Russia that was no longer willing to continue to play. I think they just have a, a greater ability to um, withstand this down market than than maybe some of the other OPEC players did. What was the uh, the reason behind their disagreement that led to some more uh, malaise for the industry? You know, what was the cause of that in the first place? And how did their inability to come to an agreement end up impacting prices for the industry? Yeah, in terms of, you know, what might have been happening behind the scenes, it's very difficult for me to know. I, I was really, frankly, a bit surprised when it happened. I thought it would uh, just be another meeting. Everybody would agree. But then when you kind of step back and look at it in hindsight, you say, you know, we, we have had a very sharply upward trajectory of oil production here. We've taken away a lot of market share from them. And so I could see the rationale while, you know, there was going to be a point at which they would no longer do that. And it looks like we've reached that. The immediate effect was, you know, it was a pretty big drop. I think we were probably trading somewhere in the mid-50s, and we were pretty quickly down to 40 and hovering somewhere around, you know, high 30s to low 40s before the uh, pandemic hit. Yeah, really the biggest impetus for the oil price war that we're feeling today has to be the pandemic. So let's just lean into that and get a little more information on that. So yeah, the pandemic was the big one. Overall, energy demand has hit an all-time slump. Oil prices crashed into the negatives. Uh, so this was you know, a major shift for the industry. What was the initial reaction from industry professionals? I know you're you know, obviously deeply embedded in the industry. Do you have any anecdotes of any, I don't know, heated calls that you had or uh, any, any immediate reactions from people within the industry when they saw the news? Well, shock, obviously, especially right. when we hit those <laughs> negative numbers. But even coming into it, you know, things that didn't happen just all of a sudden. There was a, I guess the thing that I see is this situation is changing uh, very rapidly, number one. So it's really, uh, it's almost hard to respond to the events of yesterday when today brings something new. But one of the things that I think has been a has made it difficult to predict what's going to happen next and made it difficult to predict or, or to make decisions about how to respond has been a lot of the uncertainty just around how the pandemic was going to play out. You know, you, you don't have to go back just a few months and there were some ominous signs coming out of China, but differences of opinion on how it would actually work through the economy, what it would mean for people around the world even, whether someone in their own community would be affected at all. Uh, that that was constantly changing as things um, as a as a disease spread around the world, and then we found ourselves, I guess, really mid March with this uh, the stay at home or orders and really a very rapid and complete or almost complete. That's, that's probably too strong of a word to say complete shutdown of our economy, but it was a very significant reduction in movement. Primarily, that's what's contributed to um, the significant or the major drop in oil prices we estimate or not not my firm but uh, you know folks in the industry are estimating that demand is down 25 to 30% in the early days we the early estimates were and when i say early days i mean the early parts of this crisis the estimates were in the 10 to 15% i think we've come to realize that it's more like 30 uh, 25 to 30 which is you remember back when I was talking about how just a small amount of oversupply, a million to a million and a half barrels, resulted in a decline of about 30% in 
spot prices. Well, this is really uncharted territory when we have that much demand destruction. Producers kept producing, uh, again, unsure how long this crisis would last, what when we would come out of it. Maybe we'll turn around very quickly. Pretty soon, though, uh, prices continued to go down. And then we got into the dynamic of, well, it's just not a matter of how low of a price you're willing to take. There just may not be any place to put it. There may not be anybody that wants it. And we've reached more or less that point now. Our storage is filling up. I wouldn't say it's completely full, but we're probably uh, weeks away from it being full uh, if production doesn't decline. There's a lot of crude in tankers on the water, um, some waiting to unload. Others, I suspect, are just waiting for market improvement. Um, a lot of traders will seize the opportunity to buy crude at a low price and hang on to it until they can sell it at a higher price. One way we're seeing that uh, manifest itself is day rates for large tankers have increased substantially over the last month, I would say. I'm not a an oil trader, but I've heard numbers that might be a, a, a tanker that was running for $100,000 a day is as much as $350,000 a day now. Hmm. Wow. How does that end up affecting day-to-day for the industry when prices shift that dramatically? Obviously, it hits revenues really hard, and that companies have ability to withstand some of that. They have reserves or other access to liquidity. Of course, they can't and don't want to shut down everything immediately. You certainly, a big part of their cost structure, of any oil and gas operator's cost structure, is the people that they use to, to operate the wells, and of course, the people in the offices that make everything run. It's not really wise to shut all that down just when prices uh, take a big dip, because it'd be very hard to restore that when prices improve. So they try to ride through it. Uh, but now we've reached the point where the prices are so weak and the ability to get the product to a market is so difficult that we are talking to a lot of operators who are shutting wells in or restricting them to to not lose any more money than they have to. What do you think is going to happen then if demand isn't restored quickly and the industry ends up stabilizing itself slowly rather than, I guess, quickly but artificially? I mean, who is most affected and how does that create some new dynamics for the industry? One thing, you know, we talked about shut-ins a minute ago, and that's that's one of the most rapid and logical things that will happen, is folks will just shut in their production. That's an interesting situation because it does reduce the amount of supply, which should be a positive for prices. But when you think about it, you realize it's it's supply that's just held in abeyance, right? It's productive capacity that is available when prices improve. The wells are still there. They're still capable of producing what they were when they were shut in. So there's this store of, of production that can be turned on in response to higher prices fairly quickly. So we would expect that that would put a dampener, if you will, on how rapidly prices could grow. So we might find ourselves in a tighter supply-demand balance due to shut-ins, and we see prices grow from maybe where they are in the low low to mid-20s, I would say, where we are right now, maybe $25 today. We could see those prices start to inch their way up around to 30 or let's just say $30 a barrel. But there's a lot of production that's ready to come back on as soon as it sees it's economic to do so. So that's going to keep it from growing very 
high to either until all that demand comes back, the virus crisis is behind us, and the economy is restored to what it was, then we would see prices expectedly go back to where they were. But until that happens, the only other thing that we have is the gradual decline of the existing wells and the lack of drilling to replace that decline. So that's the other thing we can expect to see fairly quickly. And I, I mean, obviously, it's already happened. If you look at the rig count, it's down dramatically. Uh, it's probably half of what it was at the beginning of the year. And I expect it will continue to drop. At these prices, uh, there is not a whole lot of onshore drilling that is economic. And folks will finish the wells that they're on. They will maybe not complete those. They may have some wells that they need to drill in order to maintain their leases, but that will be uh, the limit of it until, I would say we won't really see a whole lot of drilling until we're back into the mid-30s range where some of the some of the best plays in the U.S. are economic at those prices. All right, before we continue and look at how all of these dynamics you helped us break down are going to affect the future of the industry and you know what can businesses do to better prepare themselves for this upcoming future, I want to rewind the clock a little bit and see if we can't look to the past for some learning lessons. So we're rewinding to the late 80s and early 90s, which saw a, a period of similar turmoil for the industry. Could you give our listeners some historical context on what was going on during the 80s and 90s and some of the similar dynamics that arise during that time for the industry? Right. Well, in a lot of respects, it is similar. Uh, we had 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 a very active period of drilling in the late 70s and into the early 80s. Uh, you, your listeners may remember that rig count reached 4,500 um, at the peak. When the prices collapsed in the early 80s, that just plummeted. And we found ourselves with a lot of job loss. Uh, many companies went into bankruptcy. Assets were acquired by other companies. And we had a, a lot of consolidation among the larger players. Um, you may remember just kind of the wave of mergers that occurred. There's some similarities with today's situation. We've been saying for a while, for the last year to two, that there is a need for consolidation in the industry. As prices diminished, the cost structure of a lot of companies, particularly smaller companies, became more difficult to sustain. And so, just like in any business, economies of scale exist. It makes sense to put groups of people together that can be more efficient, and we would expect a wave of those to happen. We didn't really see as much of that as we would have thought, and I think a large part of that is due to just the, the different way capital's been deployed in the industry compared to where it was in the mid-'80s. We have a very robust private equity capital uh, market that has funded a great number of companies. That's where a lot of the growth in our industry over the last decade in particular, but really you could say the last 20 years, that has been the source of capital for starting up new companies, for developing new technology, for entering into new plays. Of course, the big companies have played a role too, but uh, this whole stage of the industry's life was quite a bit different than it was in the 80s, at least from my recollection. There wasn't as much consolidation of those companies during the last few years, uh, just I think a lot due to the way the capital is structured. And here we are now, though, we're going through a period of a lot of 
corporate restructurings, a lot of balance sheet restructurings, and new owners are coming in. I think, though, that the the need for consolidation still exists, or at least the need for some improvement in cost structures. That could take the shape of changing the way people do their jobs, uh, defining roles differently, how technology is applied to help them be more productive. I think we'll see a continued outsourcing of different types of jobs, uh, maybe jobs that in the past were not uh, contemplated to be uh, outsourced. And those are things that we have today that we, you know, we didn't have, they really weren't part of the toolkit back in the 80s, if you will. So then what were some of the learning lessons you'd say from the you know, price drops from the 80s and 90s that might apply today? Uh, and we'll get into you know, what we should be doing actionably today here in a second. But you know, if you had to think back, what were the takeaways that really ended up sticking with the industry based on that price conflict? Well, you know, that, that time period was one that was uh, a lot different from today in a, a pretty important respect, at least it, it seems to me as someone who lived through it. Um, you know, when I started my career uh, in the early 80s, we didn't all have computers on our desk. There, there was still a lot of work that was being done by uh, hand on paper. Uh, as crazy as that sounds today, um, actually, I worked for a major oil company, and to get a personal computer on my desk was a it was something I had to go justify, right? That, and then now here we are. You know, you get one, <laughs> whether you like it or not. And we were able to, as we moved through the 80s and we started employing more computing, both in large scale, but also on the desktop, we were able to drive great increases in productivity. And so basically we could get more work done with a smaller workforce. And that was really, you know, kind of the mantra. If you think back to starting in 1983 through really the early 90s, you know, I bet I went through maybe as many as, uh, I'll say 10, but certainly six uh, rounds of restructuring in my career. And each time we were getting a little bit smaller and we were trying to do as much or more as we used to. And all that was being made possible by, by improved computing power, improved software, and redesigning uh, workflows and work processes to help people work better. Now we're at a place where we've gotten a lot of those gains, or at least the, the one I mean, we've gotten a lot of them. But I would say I would say the challenge for the industry is we're going to have to continue to think about those and develop new productivity improvements so we can continue to do the same. Perfect. All right. So let's now take that context and the context you laid out earlier on the different pieces that set up the current price war and now try to get some actionable insights on what we should be doing. So how do you foresee these different disparate causes for the price war uh, playing out, both the Saudi Arabia and Russia price issue, uh, the pandemic any of the general industry malaise that was already felt before any of these major shifts. What are some of your opinions on how you think that's going to play out? Well, I, I think it almost has to play out in reverse, especially since the the epidemic is was the most significant and hopefully will be the shortest lived. That we are able to solve this 
and get folks back to work, get the economy humming again, and restore all the demand that we lost. But really, since that's been the biggest contributor, until most of that is behind us, those other issues are, you know, they're, they're really not, as, they're not that significant. Uh, you know, it was funny, as, as I was thinking about this, this conversation, it dawned on me that in some respects, it, it reminded me of uh, the situation in World War One, which was also, you know, a time of uh, kind of worldwide crisis with the war. And then a pandemic, the Spanish flu came along, and it completely disrupted the world in a way that it actually contributed to the end of the war, that people couldn't fight because of the impact of the uh, flu. I think we've got to work our way through all this, and then we can start to deal with some of the more structural problems that uh, we face. So let's assume we get through that and we're back to a world of where uh, demand is something north of 90 million barrels a day. Maybe we get back to 100 million barrels a day whenever that time comes. Well, first of all, if that time comes uh, several years, you know, let's say on an outside two or three years from now, our production in the United States will likely have declined quite a bit. And we may not be the number one producer, and we may not be uh, as big of a threat to OPEC and to Russia. And in fact, they may be in a position then to restrict supply in a way that will support prices and get us back to where we were, let's say, um, in 2018 or 19, when you know prices were more in the 50 to $60 range. I think there's a general sense that, you know, I guess... The general sense changes as new facts come available, but if you go back a couple years, uh, from what I read, there was a there was a pretty strong consensus that prices would stay in the fifty to sixty dollar range. That as prices were to rise higher, that would spur on uh, additional drilling, uh, particularly in the shale plays, and that would put a dampener on prices. And as they drop lower, that would spur demand, and it would help raise prices again. I think the kind of the surprise was, to me anyway, when oil prices dropped down into the low 40s, that we just continued to produce at a pretty uh, at a pretty strong rate. So, if we can get back to pre-pandemic conditions, we may find that the U.S. production is no longer at this 12 million barrels a day. If it's not, then and let's say it's below 10, then maybe we're back to the dynamic we were at before, where things were kind of stable around 50 to $60. If for some reason we are, well, then we're back in this kind of the situation that I don't think has a really easy solution. Because if we are a significant global producer, and we are unable because of our unique political structure and our unique ownership of oil and gas, we're unable to have any coordinated response, uh, supply response, then we will probably find ourselves um, the target, if you will, of OPEC again. And they will take actions to increase supply, try to push prices down, and uh, basically slow our business down again. So we have to be resilient and we have to be ready for lower prices. We have to uh, adapt our business models so that we can make money in, in what could be a sustained low price environment. I think the outlook for oil companies is definitely different depending on your size. 
how do you think oil companies, especially some of the smaller shale companies uh, that don't have as much liquidity on hand, are going to fare? Uh, you know, do you think they're going to survive? And what can they do to get to the point where they're more insulated in the short term and then long term as well in case anything like this ever happens again? It doesn't have to be pandemic related, but it could be another shock to oil prices. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it's going to be mixed for sure. And to be to survive, you're going to have to have the, the same things that companies always need to survive in, in tough times. Um, you're going to have to have the best management. You'll have to have superior assets. You know, the geology is not all the same in these plays. There are spots that are better than others. And you would expect those that are in the better basins, and especially the better parts of the better basins, are more likely to survive. And you'll have to have uh, access to liquidity. Good, good management and good assets usually opens the door to investors. And I believe that despite the fact that there has been a lot of money lost in the industry due to the price downturn over the last few years, there continues to be investor interest. Some investors leave, new investors see an opportunity to come in, especially when markets are down. And so I think that uh, good companies will have access to capital. And then what would your final advice be, whether that is you know, it could be behavioral on how to approach leadership for these companies during this time. It could be uh, in restructuring business models and, um, you know, restructuring business relationships. Do you have any final insights or advice for oil business professionals on how they can get to a point where they can prosper after all of this is over? What are some of the tangible steps to take and what does that look like? I think you, you you hit on something real important there is kind of after all of this is over because managing through something like this is um, where it's so difficult to predict what this is and how long it will last. It's very hard to make suggestions about how to do that. But once it is all over, I think sometimes I think we may return to the way in some respects what the business looked like in the 90s and early 2000s before we before the shale revolution occurred and the industry went through this tremendous growth phase, there was a much stronger focus on on efficiency, on cost control, and on investment decision making. Uh, we had a period of time over the last decade in particular where it was what I'd call a land grab. New plays were opening up. Folks were applying horizontal drilling and fracturing to new rock, new ideas, and a lot of those were very successful. So there was a rush to get in and get acreage under lease, develop it modestly, at least prove it up, and then sell it to someone who was going to be the the long-term developer. We've kind of been through that whole process. Uh, Now we find ourselves where uh, companies have to build themselves to survive uh, for a longer than just a two to three to four year kind of time frame where they would develop a position and then sell it. Um, and so I think that's going to require a, a focus on the kinds of things we focused on then, which was making sure your staff was right-sized, living within cash flow. We talk a lot about shifting to more of a free cash flow model, if you will, at least one that can generate some cash flow and not just consume capital um, for the sake of growth. That will be challenging in the uh, in the shale plays in particular, uh, just because the wells have pretty high declines. And so to maintain production does require that you have a, um, a certain reinvestment rate. 
to do that and generate free cash, that will require good investment decision-making. You'll have to drill the wells that you can feel confident are going to um, deliver the best results. There'll also have to be a lot of focus on cost control, and that's both in the field, that's in the logistics of drilling wells and investing capital, and it's back in the office. Successful companies are going to continue to think about new ways that people work together, uh, new ways jobs are defined and what their roles are. I would expect that there will be a premium, not folks sick together, but for folks that can wear multiple hats um, and uh, you know bring more than just one thing to the table. All right, Steve Hendrickson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Again, Steve Hendrickson is the president of Ralph E. Davis Associates, an affiliate of Opportune LLP. Steve, if folks want to find out a little bit more about Opportune, about Ralphie Davis Associates, or some of the work you do, what are some different sites or social medias that we should be sending people to? Well, of course, there's our, our website, opportune.com. Uh, it's got links to our engineering practice, plus all the other things we do there. Um, we send out a weekly newsletter from my group that if folks are interested in, they can contact us through that website. Uh, we also have a, num- a number of uh, other publications that our uh, our company sends out from time to time, and I'm sure there's a way at that website to get access to those as well. Perfect. All right, Steve, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Appreciate your insights and looking forward to getting you back on soon. Yes, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure you're going to opportune.com, again, opportune.com, for previous and upcoming episodes of the show, as well as more info on our insights and our solutions. You can also find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and make sure you're leaving a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.